Hello and welcome to the ESG Fitness Podcast. I have a very special surprise, which is Andy is back. Buongiorno. Back from back from the back from wherever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well you're not back. You're still down in the borders, aren't you? Yeah, I'm still down there here at the moment, but hoping to be back up to Edinburgh for the start of phase two, which will hopefully mean that I can get back to work properly. So that's good. Yeah, finally. Yeah, okay, we have, we've got like amazing questions this week. Not that we don't always, I say like that's a surprise, but very, very good. Uh, okay, so the first one I was meant to answer last week and Lauren pulled me up about it. Like, I listened to the podcast for my question and you didn't say it. And that's because it's actually quite a long answer if you answer it how I like to answer things <laughs> and it didn't, really, um, it didn't really fit on the last podcast so the question is what is vo2 max and is it a good measure of fitness what are your like initial thoughts about vo2 max so vo2 max um for me is for a start for measuring fitness for general joes it's going to be really um it's going to be quite a, it's a big ask to go and try and find someone that's going to be able to do it for you because you have to go and find lab settings. So you have to find somebody that can actually do it properly somewhere that actually does it. So probably we'd have to go to a university or, a, you know, a, a testing facility elsewhere. You're going to have to pay for it. And it's probably not going to be cheap unless you get like a you're looking, somebody's looking for a sort of lab, a lab rat to do their VO2 max. Um, yeah the only way you could get it cheap or free is if you volunteer for a study where they're testing yeah. your fitness at the start and at the end or something yeah and it's for me it's it's obviously it's a good te- it's a good test for like anybody who's it, i would always say that obviously if athletes are getting it regularly you'll see the t- differences between stuff but you would need to get it done quite regularly as well to see the changes and people might not have the budget or the time to give away to be able to go and do these things so mm-hmm. it's Probably not something I would, it's not something I would, it's not going to be the, at the forefront of what I would use for testing people. No, absolutely not. I think for general population, absolutely not needed. You can do things like um, a VO2 max predictor. So like basically you do incremental exercise, but not to the extent of reaching your VO2 max. And it sort of predicts how you would respond if you had gone all the way. So you can do things like that, which might give you an idea. Um, if anyone's like, I don't even know what VO2 max is, what you're talking about. The VO2 max test basically incrementally pushes you up to the point at which you can no longer get oxygen to your muscles and get rid of the byproducts quickly enough. Basically, another way to think about this and the way I like to think about it is it's your maximal aerobic capacity. So after that point, after your VO2 max, what happens is lactate and other byproducts start to accumulate in your muscles and you're working more anaerobically and you can't clear those quickly enough. So it is, um, it is a good test of endurance slash fitness. That's kind of what we would use in research. Um, but interestingly, and I, well, I find this really interesting. So it's not always a very good predictor like it's actually quite a good predictor for general population okay but when you get to elite athlete level and actually kind of ironic because they're the people that normally test it the most it's not very predictive of performance so i would bet that let's look at like the i don't know 5k at the olympics i would bet that all of those people have pretty damn high vo2 maxes but i would also bet that you couldn't predict who was going to win or run the fastest time given their vo2 max because what happens at that point when you're already very fit is that it's the changes in running economy that mean that you can run faster at that point of VO2 max. Um, so there's a really cool case study of Paula Radcliffe um, that, and it shows that her VO2 max doesn't change from when she's like 18 until she breaks the world record. But what does change is the speed at which she runs at when she reaches her VO2 max. So that's more important than the VO2 max itself. And that, like, that's to do with running economy. But it's like running economy sounds like it's just running in a more economic way, but it's really your body. So it's things like cardiac output. It's um, 
the diffusion of oxygen from your lung into the blood. It's the transport of that oxygen to your muscle. It's your red blood cell count, um, which is also why athletes blood dope because they want to be able to increase that capacity to get oxygen to those working muscles. And that's why things like EPO and blood doping work. And it's also why going and living at altitude can improve performance as well when you come back down from altitude because you need more red blood cells when you're at high altitude. Um, so wait, what was the question? <laughs> what is VO2 good- maximums that could measure fitness? I think we answered that, I think. Yeah, we did. Yeah, definitely. Okay, great. Okay, this is one for you. Oh, needs to be a bit wider. Okay. What do I do for joint care apart from good stretching? My joints get sore, especially elbows and knees. Are there any good foods or supplements or anything I can do? I'm 35, so I think age might be playing a part already. <laughs> what do you think of that, Andy? Well, I'm 38. I'll, I'll agree with that question. <laughs> um, he says, and my joints are always sore. It comes and goes, but I'd like to know if there's anything I can do to make it better or at least not make it worse. Um, well, some mobility work's always going to be helpful. So, um, what you might find is if you're, um, if you're training lots, um, you're training lots, your muscles might start to sort of start pull joints or not pull them completely out of place, but start to move. Like if one side, if, say for instance, you're doing a lot of chest work, your pecs will start to tighten up and pull your shoulders forward, which might put a little bit of pressure out on the joints. So you really need to start thinking about working the sort of posterior of the muscle as well, so your back. But simple mobility drills. Um, I've, I usually put out to clients um, Joe DeFranco's Agile 8 and Limber 11, which are two lower body mobility drills, but he's actually got an upper body mobility drill as well, if you just YouTube it, which is really good as well. So just a little bit of movement stuff. I always try to get uh, myself and also clients to go and see a masseuse or a sports therapist potentially once every six weeks, once every four weeks. Obviously, a lot of it's about budget dependent and time dependent, dependent as well, um, just to keep help keep you mobile too. Um, other things to work with, think about with joints as well as water is to, to be hydrated. I think there's a lot of, a lot of people train a lot and find that their joints start to get quite sticky and sore. And I think a lot of the time, sometimes it's, I've been, some of the stuff I've seen is, is a lot of folk are sort of dehydrated, so they've not got as much water in the, the synovial fluid, which obviously sits around the joint, which is what obviously is the lubricant between the joint and the, and, or the bone that's, and bones that are in there. So yeah, um, supplement-wise, there's a whole host of supplements that may work. Um, some of them are guff, like, you know, there's things like, I think, is it turmeric and black peppers apparently supposed to be quite good for it, but... What, for your joints? Yeah, apparently so. It's good for, so for inflammation. Oh, okay, actually, yeah, I can see, I can see that. So, Um, I actually answered this question really briefly to her, and I just said, like, if this is a problem that you're having, you'll find, like, you know, 35 isn't an age that you should have really sore joints, like, no matter what you've been doing, it shouldn't be. Um, if that is the onset of something like arthritis, I don't mean to scare you, like it's probably not, Mm. but if that is something that you are worried about, I would go to your doctor and speak to them because they may be able to do some kind of test for you. But again, anything like turmeric and black pepper, like I don't know what effect they have really, but if that could reduce chronic inflammation that you've got, which is a major either cause or side effect, I'm not really sure. And I'm not sure the research really knows either of many things including arthritis including type 2 diabetes including cardiovascular disease so keeping chronic inflammation low but that should be low given that you're fit active have a healthy nutritious diet with antioxidants in it yeah well yeah apart from that there's loads of stuff like folk talking about is it glucosamine and chondroitine and all this kind of stuff there's so many things out there that are aimed at joints and there's still nothing like research wise there's very little out there to suggest that it actually does anything <coughs> excuse me so yeah um supplement wise i wouldn't stress too much about that stuff try and get everything else in place first yeah um, before you start thinking about that agreed okay why don't we lose fat in a linear fashion is the next question i would say okay i'm gonna say yes and no to this because actually i think 
sometimes we do lose fat in a linear fashion and actually quite often we do if we're in a consistent deficit what we don't do is lose weight in a linear fashion which is what people get confused about and that's like a really like really important thing to understand and for various reasons which we go through all the time like human like female physiology your menstrual cycle changes in hormones can mean that you retain a bit more water food volume salty food time of day like anything everyone's weight will fluctuate to some extent some more some less try not to worry about it just know that this is why we focus so much on behaviors because behaviors are gonna result in the fat loss and focusing on like if your week is a win because you've lost weight that's fine but on the week that you don't lose weight if you've still tick all of the behaviors we've asked you to do all of the non-negotiables like getting your steps in getting your protein in getting your calories in eating enough fruit and veg getting some workouts in those might be specific to you as in what exact numbers those are but if you have stuck to those i know that if fat loss is your goal and i've targeted those towards fat loss you will lose fat you might not lose weight so you've got to sort of differentiate those two things um the other thing is it probably won't be linear because as you lose fat you then have less fat to lose so it's it's very likely if not like definite that your fat loss rate will slow as you have less fat to lose as you has have less total fat to lose um so that's probably one of the reasons that the one pound a week sort of number isn't completely correct uh, do you have anything to add on that no, I think it's. I think that's pretty much pretty pretty well put. That one, I think it's. Um, as you say, you need to distinguish between body fat and weight loss. There's two. They're two totally different yeah. things. Um, and you know, just because you're, you might be finding that your your weight's going up and down, and especially with females, as you mentioned, you know, things like hormone patterns, etc., make a massive difference. But even like things like you know, eating later in the day, all these little simple things can can change these things so it's it's about getting the as you say getting the non-negotiables right first and foremost exactly um that links a little bit to a bit of a rant i had on calorie calculators what are your thoughts on huh calorie calculators is well you know every we, we discuss regularly that you know there is no such thing as a calculation that's going to be the the definitive thing for your calories because it's you know there's so many everything all calorie calculators are worked on by what could be body weight could be your um, activity levels they'll all change but the big thing is is about finding it's it, they'll give you an approximation of what the what you should be taking in and then after that it's about you manipulating them to work for you um calorie calculators you know there's and there's so many different ways that so many different calculations that people use as well so you know you could get five different people's methods and you'll have five different calorie intakes so what do you use you know you're better just to go for the first one you find stick it pop your calories in and then manipulate them as you as you feel that you need them you know because you've been doing this so long you can probably look at somebody and have an approximation of how many calories you reckon you can you'll be able to give them without them but for maintenance um you know it's but i think it's people get hung up on this stuff because it's you know it's numbers it's figures yeah but what do they what do they actually mean yeah so i think i had um I had a really big think about them actually over the weekend because we had so many people starting on the EC method and I was trying to get everyone's calories in check and I give them a calorie calculator, but it was coming out very high. Now this is like the Harris Benedict equation, which is quite like it's the most commonly used one and probably one of the most accurate for general population. Um, but it comes out quite high if you're, if you weigh quite a lot and if you yes. weigh quite a lot because you've got a lot of muscle and you're very tall, the equation still works pretty well. So it puts you in like a, a, it's still a 20% deficit, but you might still be dieting on 2,100 calories. But if you weigh a lot because you have a lot of body fat to lose, you could afford to diet on much less calories, diet for a shorter amount of time, get results quicker and probably be more adherent because you're seeing results. So it was quite hard to use. And I found there was errors at both ends. So like I like to diet people who have a lot of body fat 
on lower calories. And I don't mean lower calories as in like 1200. I mean like 1800, even though the calorie calculator might say over 2000 and same with lighter people. So if there's someone who's 50 kilograms, I might not put them in a 20% deficit because they might not have that much fat to lose. So I like, I think the calculators need a little bit of human touch as well like that i guess that's why we're here as coaches to overlook these things to look over these things um and then i made a bit of a statement i said that i thought that that most women who aren't like excessively active let's say it's your general population woman she wants to lose weight she's going to train three times a week she's going to hit her ten thousand steps i said that 1500 calories trying to hit 100 grams of protein and keep that activity at ten thousand brilliant place to start monitoring it up from there that's so generic but it's almost like i think that is a better starting point than going to these calculators and i had so many dms because I, I stupidly said on my story oh if you need some help calculating your calories i'll help you <laughs> don't know why i said that but so many people and people saying yeah. things like i've put it in this calculator it says this i put it in someone else's and it said this and like it seems to be a thing at the moment and I think I know why. I think people are putting a calorie calculator on their website, but you need to put your email address in to get your calories sent to you or something. So they're trying yeah, to get so your a, email address. A landing, it's a landing page for email addresses, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Which is totally fine. But also yeah, yeah. you could just Google total daily energy expenditure calculator for free and that will give you the same stuff without you putting your email address in. But either way, it doesn't really matter. Just know that like it doesn't hugely matter where you start it matters how you monitor and adapt that so if you started on 1800 and you weren't in a deficit not the end of the world we have to lower your calories if you started on 1500 and then you're finding actually you've decided you want to walk to work every day and that adds on another 8,000 steps okay maybe we need to increase your calories a little bit or you're like i'm gonna train for a marathon or i want to train six days a week instead of three Okay, so we adapt to that. But all you need is a starting point. Yeah. Well, also as well, you've got to think and remember with stuff, a lot of these calculators, there's going to be a lot of human error from the person who's putting it in as well. So they'll be overestimating how active they are. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, do that's a massive definitely. one. Yeah. Definitely. And I'm not a sedentary worker. Although they sit in an office and they don't move from their desk and they do about 3,000 steps a day. But yeah. everything's up. And also, if you were to be given 1,500 calories, people will also think about, or general people always go, oh, that's too low. I'll just put it up to 1,800. Well, no, that's not how this works. Like, it might get to 1,800 at some point, but at the moment, if we're working at 1,500, we've made that, you've, you've made that suggestion on calories for a reason. So it's, um, it's always better to get, it's always better to get uh, an outside eye on it because you've, you, you know, even myself, like if I'm doing that, like I'll run stuff past, like I'll run stuff past you or I'll run stuff past Shona and it's just bits and bobs like that. It's having that sort of um, critical analysis from somewhere else who doesn't have, who doesn't have a personal, like who's, who's not going to go, oh, I'll just give myself an extra 200 yeah. calories. Oh, I think I deserve it. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and then there's other errors that come in that, so the calculation is based on your body weight, your height, your gender, or is it your sex, your sex, um, and your activity levels. And like yeah. Andy's saying, like activity levels, it, it, you sometimes put like, oh, I'm very active. I train a couple of times a week. No, no, that will spit you out so many calories. It's actually quite a big multiplier. Um, so that's one one factor that can come in and then the other point is and this would be very hard to put in a calculation but if you are someone who has dieted quite often or let's say you were 100 kilograms you dieted right down to 65 kilograms your basal metabolic rate is going to be lower than someone else who's just always sat at 65 kilograms and hasn't dieted down from a, a higher body weight the calculator also doesn't include that that's why it's so like you just need a starting point you just need to adapt another question i got when i did a post about this was if i start too low won't i just plateau and have nowhere to go and this is such a common thing that people think and you don't plateau because you've dieted for like a certain amount of time you normally plateau because either you can't stick to the calories because they are too low 
maybe we need to increase them or maybe you're not planning your meals well enough or you're not having like making the right food choices to make 1500 calories look like a lot of food Mm. um so one reason you plateau is adherence another reason you might plateau is that portion sizes creep up so there's a really interesting study that shows i think it was potentially it was a year long it was either a year or six months but anyway a group of people started tracking 500 calories and they they were checked at the start and their tracking was accurate they were in a 500 calorie deficit sorry they were tracking their 500 calorie deficit not just 500 calories by the end of the year they were still tracking they still thought they were in a 500 calorie deficit they were actually in an 80 calorie deficit so quite a big change there. So that could be another thing that's happening is that you still think you're in a deficit, but your calories have creeped up. Um, but the point is, if you go low with your calories and you can adhere to it and you can track it properly and you can stick to it, you will lose, quite, you will lose fat quicker and then you can move back up to maintenance because you've reached your quote unquote goal weight or like goal body composition. You've lost the fat yeah. that you wanted to lose. So yeah, that's another myth that people think that you will inevitably plateau, which is yeah. not the case. Exactly. Okay. Wow. Feel good now. I've got that off my chest. Okay, <laughs> Andy, question for you. Um, what is the best way to even even? I cannot read today. What is the best way to even out strength imbalances? I'm doing some more isolated exercises and, and I've realized that my right shoulder is significantly weaker than my left, which seems odd because I'm right-handed. Actually, I really already knew this because I could feel the left shoulder doing more work on the overhead presses, etc., in the gym, but I chose to ignore it. <laughs> I guess there are two strategies that might make sense. Option one, continue doing the same isolated shoulder exercises on both sides. Ultimately, wait for them to converge on a given strength level i.e the left will plateau and the right will catch up option two deliberately do more weight on the right shoulder and less on the left can you guess who this question is from i can't guess who it's from but i I know what my answer is going to be (laughs) have a guess just given how it's been written and the options i have no idea there's so many it could be (laughs) it was hannah ah no. Typical. She always gets these quits. Oh, God, bloody hell, bloody woman. <laughs> <laughs> right, what's the answer? Uh, I wouldn't be loading one side heavier than the other for a start. That's just going to cause an even bigger imbalance. Um, so take things back, start working for with some different um, some different um, rep ranges, some different, so maybe a slightly heavier for shorter range reps. But keep the weights the same. So don't do like a six on one side and a three on the other. All you're going to do is you're going to start, you're just going to create more imbalances. So um, keep things as even as possible. Make sure your technique's working nicely. Um, try and have a look around and see what it is that's maybe impinging the movement and that's stopping the, stopping the progression. So um, one, thing I've always, one thing I've always felt myself from... Um, playing football for years and stuff, is I always felt that my left, although my right leg footer, my left hand side is always much stronger in a static position because it's standing foot. And it's a similar thing. I've probably got a better grip with my left hand and I've got a better strength in my left hand because that's the one that does all the the, the, the grunt work while my right hand does everything. Like I'll hold the phone, I'll do whatever I need to do with the right hand. So you probably find that it's something like, maybe something along those lines, but don't overload one side. Keep the weights the same. Look at getting nice picture perfect technique. Definitely with things like shoulders. Shoulders are always one of the things that you'll see these things come up in because it's something that fatigues very quickly. Um, but yeah, don't don't be overloading anything. So don't be doing different weights on different sides. I think it's 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 you're going down a bit of a an unknown path about where it could end up pushing imbalances further. Yeah. Great answer. Yeah, and it is interesting, isn't it? Because everyone thinks that their right hand would be stronger than their left, given they're right-handed. But then when you think about it, your right hand does all your fine motor skills. So like texting or writing or anything. Whereas like, even if you think about writing, like you're holding, not that it's like a huge exertion to hold the page, but like you're holding the page or anything still, and then you're writing on it, doing whatever you need to do with fine motor skills and more control 
on your yeah. right hand. Exactly, and I think that's something that I've noticed from, like, obviously, you, you might have noticed that from playing sport and stuff as well, that the side that's the side that's the classed as the weaker side is generally stronger because it's it's the side that has to do... It's even things like if you play in rugby, like, play for instance, playing rugby, you're, the, the motor skills of your right hand for passing or for... You're going to use your left hand to def, like defend people off. So you're going to have to be stronger on that side. But it's stronger in a position where you're not having to have as much... Um, being as dexterous, so you don't have to do as much movement with it. So, yeah, I think it's... Um, I think it's one of those ones people start to see when, especially when you get into training, you'll start to see these little things. Oh, I would always thought it would be stronger on my right hand side, but actually, my my left hand side's stronger. It's these little things that you start to notice. Yeah, I wonder if it's from Hannah's previous rugby career. <laughs> Big handoff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Next question, Sawyer. I get confused if it's good for me or not. I've not put dairy milk in my coffee. Oh. <laughs> I thought that was like a dairy milk bar. Okay, I think she means I've not put like, yeah, dairy milk in my coffee for ages now and I don't like it as much. Almond milk doesn't mix well. Yes, that's gross. Have you ever put almond milk in your coffee? I don't drink to your coffee. I don't do hot oh, drinks. Oh, do you do any hot drinks here? Well, it's disgusting. Uh, it looks like curdled milk. It just goes all... Yeah, I quite like oat milk to be fair, but... Um, oh, we're, um, we're about to come on to that, Andy. I absolutely love... Cow, I love I love cow's milk. So like, I love, I love cow's dairy. milk. I love cow's milk. The original milk. <clears throat> I tried cashew and it was like piss water. Mm, good to know. I haven't tried that. And That's also I really a very very good description. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oat milk's really nice. Although I had um, I got really into oat milk flat whites. Like so good, and I loved them so much. And then I had a migraine right after having one, and now I can't even think about them. Oh, no. And that was like over a year ago, and I still can't think about them. Yeah. Okay. The thing with oats is that there's obvs, not as much protein, and the nutrients aren't as good. I've heard that soya is bad for estrogen. I researched it a lot and thought it was backed up. But then I've also heard that it's good for phytoestrogens, which I which I want, question mark, question mark, do I drink it or not? Okay, first of all, if this is like the milk that you put in coffee, like don't overthink it. You're not going to get much protein from that anyway. You're probably not having coffee as a source of protein. So I wouldn't worry about that. Like if you want to have oat milk, crack on, you can get your protein somewhere else. Um, Phytoestrogens, which would be in soya protein or soya drinks, they do mimic some of the effects of estrogen, but they're not obviously not generated by our endocrine system. Interestingly, I looked this up. The name means plant estrogen. So mm-hmm. phyto means plant in Greek. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, and it is confusing because there are health benefits, but then there are also like risks as well. And yeah. I think mainly because like if you're taking... I mean, it's not as much as like injecting extra estrogen, but if it slightly changes that hormone balance, that might not be a good thing. Like if your hormones are already in balance. Yeah. I think the, the biggest effect you're going to see and potentially the biggest benefit you will see is in menopausal women who will already have like lowering levels of estrogen as they go through the menopause I don't know. Like, I mean, if you were already on HRT, so like hormone replacement therapy, I don't think it would have much of an effect. But if you're not, then potentially trying to get more phytoestrogens in your diet might be a good thing. I did look up some research and unfortunately the main review I found suggested that it didn't have much effect on symptoms. I think they mostly looked at hot flashes. So estrogen has a key role in your cardiovascular system and how your arteries and capillaries like dilate and vasoconstrict. And that's one reason that as you're going through the menopause and you have all these fluctuations in hormones, you get things like hot flashes because you know, you're, you've maybe your arteries or your capillaries have dilated, which means that you get really hot and blood flow is increased, but it doesn't seem to help them. Unfortunately, 
Yeah, and I think there was also the remember there was also the the claims that soy was bad for males as well mm. by sort of like dropping testosterone levels. But I don't think there's been any studies that have actually backed that one up. No, I looked and the reviews on that, and it's like a Cochrane review, which is pretty decent. Um, it showed that there wasn't an effect on testosterone. So men, if you like soy, continue. And this is probably especially the case for people who are vegan or vegetarian, and that might be an uh, important source of protein for them. So yeah. I wouldn't be worried about eating soy, things that, that include soy. Yeah, I think especially if it's if it's in your coffee, as you said, you're not. It's not going to. You're not looking at it for a, pro, a source of protein. It's like people claiming that they're. Oh, I've got a source of protein. I've got peanut butter as a source of protein. No, no, peanut butter has some protein in it. It's not a source of protein. It's actually more of a source of fat than anything else. Yeah. But it's not a source of protein. But people seem to claim that. Oh yeah, I get protein in my diet. I take peanut butter. Okay, right. To get the amount of protein out of peanut butter you're going to be eating about a jar of it and the 10 calories, calories. Oh. yeah not not good okay no. um vitamins slash supplements i take creatine omega-3 d3 b12 zinc and magnesium i've looked into each of these and have various reasons for choosing them um d lack of sunshine magnesium sleep etc etc Am I being excessive? Are they actually useful? Would you do different ones instead? I actually um, like that list. Say that again? I quite like that list. Yeah, it's a, it's, that's a pretty reasonable list. I don't think I... I'm just trying to think if there's anything else that I put into mine. Um, no, I've, I take zinc and magnesium before bed. Helps sleep. Helps recovery. Um... I don't take zinc and magnesium, but I might start taking it. Yeah, I, I found that, like, um, so I generally will always have melatonin and zinc and magnesium. Melatonin is something that I'll not use unless I'm struggling to sleep. So later on when I'm dieting, so you're getting sort of that leaner bit and your sleep starts to get affected, I'll potentially take it then. But zinc and magnesium, I've taken, um, taken sort of for quite a long quite a lot of my training career, and it's, it does help me sleep. Um, it's also something that the the British Olympic team use before they get on a flight. So they double dose it. So they take like double to treble the, def, the, the daily, daily allowances to go on a flight. One, it'll maybe help you sleep when you're on the flight if you're sort of trying to sort of keep your sleeping pattern. But also as well, it's apparently quite good for helping just prop up your immune system because you know you get your, mm. all the crap that comes through the, the air conditioning and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's I, f I found I double dosed it when before we went to Mexico last year, and I just I was flaked out like a light before the plane had even start before it even started its engines. I was like slurring in the side. So yeah, definitely helps me. Sleep. That's ideal when you can sleep on flight and then you just wake up and you're there. Oh. Taking me out sleep anyway. It's, it's I think it's I'd say it's a it's a big positive, but I think if you were a law, that's probably a negative because I'm sitting yeah. snoring beside her. <laughs> But now, supplement-wise, I reckon that's that's probably about right. It's the problem is is there are so many supplements out there that are just very well marketed that have got no like substantial or, or it's in some cases any scientific backing behind them. It's because they've got influencers, they've got good marketing, and they look they look exciting. So you know, people are like, "Oh my god, I need to try that because it's going to do this for me." But in actual fact, if you were to go back in and look at look at it in depth, it's probably not got that many things in it that are actually that that worthwhile. Um, mm. But and the sort of thing that we 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 regularly say is, is the website examine.com. If you have any question or any thoughts about something like a supplement or like that you're looking to take, go into examine.com, type it in, and it will give you every, all the bits of information you need to know, including things like studies, all that research, all that kind of stuff, and it's it's all free as well. Yes, yeah, no, and like I mean, that's where a lot of the information I will tell you comes from. Like, if you ask me about something yeah. that I haven't researched recently, I will just go to examine. So, if you want to go there, then absolutely do. Um, yeah, weirdly, like I kind of, and this is so stupid, but when my back's been bad, like I've kind of just stopped taking supplements because, mm. which is probably the exact time I needed the most, but I'm like, meh. But I'm getting back into things now. I've lost like 
Oh, I'm really bad at maths. Twelve pounds? Not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah. Leaning in, leaning in. Yeah, I'm getting there. Um, okay. Oh, speaking of that, as you were talking, I was like, oh, maybe I'll read out. So I got this message this morning. Hi, Emma. I hope all is good with you. I've came across a product. That is not the right tense, but okay. Called Prove It, which has only been available in America until Monday. Also not true. It is now available across multiple countries. And I have set up a company page called Ketones Direct. This product is unbelievable and contains all natural ingredients, helps with cognitive thinking, a great source of energy, uplifts in mood, which is extremely helpful in the current situation, and fat loss. We are a diverse range with people taking it from UFC fighters, business owners, pro soccer players to single mums. Can I send you a free sample for you to review? Babe. Oh. wrong crowd wrong, wrong crowd. crowd darling wrong crowd um, prove it that's the one that's spelled P-R-U-I-V yeah yeah I absolute horseshit um, yeah. yeah it's the thing is the funniest thing is there it improves cognitive function well if it does you wouldn't be selling it because you'd have worked out that it's a pile of horse crap so it obviously does improve cognitive function you moron <laughs> oh that's hilarious I just wrote back saying is there anything is there any evidence behind it and he says, yes, we test the raw materials using state-of-the-art instrumentation like HPLC, NIR, etc. I can say loads of different letters. Yeah, like, what? Like, Just because it's an acronym doesn't mean I'm going to... ASAP, lol, there we go. <laughs> LMAO. Um some of the world's leading doctors have many studies behind this, not to mention the trillions of testimonials. To be honest, I was completely skeptical myself until I tried this. It's already been proven in the US market. And then he sent me a link to proveit.com. Yeah. That's the most hilarious thing though. We test the raw materials as state and state of the art instrumentation. Instrumentation? Seems like he's just come from Narnia. Mr. Tumbus is, oh, Mr. Tumbus I think, is checking off I think like he's probably like, oh, long, long words and acronyms, that'll, that'll help. Yeah, that's going, that's going to make a, sell, make a sale. Oh, yeah. Honestly, it's, prove it, just another MLM scheme, isn't it? It's just... Yeah, it's, and I think my real gripe with it is it's so expensive. Well, I, I was having a discussion with a client yesterday, actually, about this, because they were, they, um, they were t- saying, oh, yeah, you know... They've been training away and stuff like that. And obviously they see things like, you know, obviously denigrate. I quite like abusing stuff like Herbalife, et cetera. And they're like, so just, she, she knew exactly what the script is, but she's like, so what's, what's the difference? It goes, right, because starting off, if you were to take a bodybuilding supplement, say a, just a protein, a, shake, a protein shake and a Herbalife protein shake, the, the price, the expense on it is ridiculous. So you'll get a 2.27 kilogram tub of, say, SciTech or Optimum Nutrition or any brand like that for probably about 30 quid. You get a one kilo tub of Herbalife protein for 80. So you're getting less than half for double the money. The choice of the, the, nutritional, the nutritional value of the bodybuilding supplement is way out and better. You get more protein. Oh no, Andy has paused. <laughs> he's paused mid, mid Herbalife run. I wonder if he's coming back. I'm just reading the... Um, oh wait, you're back. Sorry, you, you paused a little bit. I did that. I'm surprised that these guys on like the MLM stuff haven't, um, haven't claimed that it's, it cures COVID yet. Because that's, that's the kind They're of stuff... They're missing they a trick. Do. Yeah, that's oh, the next I- thing. Well, it cures COVID. Okay, fair do. <laughs> do you know what's a shame? Like, I just clicked on the link, and it would be very easy to think that this is legit. Like, they've got doctors backing it, and there's that obvious claim to a like authority. Like, oh, why would a doctor be backing it if it doesn't work? Okay, well, check out a lot of doctors, and you will see why. But yeah. yeah. Let's let's have a look at that. Let's have a look at that um, company directory of the direct of, of the people who are making money from. Oh wait a yes. minute! They're oh. doctors that studied it. Funny that. Gee whiz. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Back back to the podcast. 
back on track. Did we answer that question? <laughs> yeah, vitamins and something. Yeah, we did. Okay, food timing. I've been eating my calories in the day before I train. This way, I feel like I have the most energy for for a training session, and I feel better fueled. 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 I am conscious that I'm not eating anything after. Is this okay? So uh, not eating anything after a training session. Yeah. So she's eating most of it before she feels like she's fueled the session and then she doesn't eat as well. She doesn't eat anything apparently after. It doesn't eat anything. So your body will have intake and have the intake of what you've had up until the session. Obviously we've talked previously about muscle protein synthesis. Sorry, that, nailed that first time. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously being stimulated by protein potentially after a training session. Um, but you know, if I was fine with this kind of stuff, especially when you're not looking at somebody who's like an elite level athlete or something like that, where it's going to make the, the, the big differences. So someone who's general Joe blogs, who's maybe just wanting to maintain a bit of weight or to drop a little bit of weight, thinking about these things are probably, it's kind of the last building blocks that go in. So I wouldn't really stress too much about it. The only reasons I would stress about it are, one, if you're going to bed and you're absolutely Hank Marvin and it's stopping you from sleeping. Um, two, if you are feeling sick or ill during your training session when you might need to drop the calories back before you train because you're just taking in too much. Um, so they're the, probably the things that I would think about rather than worrying too much about what happens after the session. But yeah, no, if you, as long as you're, as long as your sessions feel properly, as long as you're recovering adequately, so you're not ultra sore for four days because your, your calories are all over the place. But yeah, as long as those things are all in place, I wouldn't stress too much about it. Yeah, I agree. And I think to remember that people think almost a little bit too short time about nutrition, like, oh, if I don't eat before my session, I won't have energy. Or if I don't eat after my session, if we think about how long it would take to break down the protein, get the amino acids in your blood, like if you're eating before the session, like I think someone worked out, I think it was Dr. Lee Hamilton. He, he worked out something like if you wanted to coincide peak muscle protein synthesis stimulation via exercise and via nutrition, you would have to start drinking your protein shakes like, 15 minutes into an hour long session or something to get that similar peak. I'm not suggesting that my point is just that it doesn't matter that much. You will yeah. still have nutrients in your blood. You can still break down glycogen for, for fuel. Um, so yeah, the short term, it doesn't hugely matter. As Andy says, like in ideal world, would we have you eating a bit before and a bit after? Yes, probably. But I don't know if when you're saying I don't eat anything after you mean, I don't eat anything after and then I go to bed or I don't eat anything straight after, but I have a meal later on because that's probably absolutely fine. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Bioelectrical impedance. Help me settle an argument on it to use it or not to use it. That is the question. A little bit of Shakespeare there, isn't it? I know. I love it. <laughs> um, for me, there's too many factors that affect it to use it. Um, so things simple as the cleanliness of the bit of kit you're using. So for to freak people out, the um, when people use these pieces of kit when they're standing on it in bare feet or they're holding on to it, they leave remnants of sweat, saliva, mm. body fat, skin cells. And it depends on who's cleaning it. If you're cleaning it regularly, but if you go into a, a pure gym, or a Barantines, or anywhere like that, where you put the pound in the machine, I can probably guarantee you there'll been a few folk on that before it's been cleaned. Um, and at a time just now where we're not supposed to be sharing any um, any bodily fluids um, because of COVID, probably not a good idea. But the other things that can affect um, bio, the, um, the bio, the electrical impulse stuff is things like hydration levels. Um, if how far you know things like even things like when you've trained like if you do it straight after a training session your body you don't know how that's going to affect your body from stimulating muscle beforehand to afterwards so it might give you a completely different reading so for me probably not it's not a, not something i would use yeah i'm i'm the same i think there's too many variables if you can be really like if you've had no not ones at home because they'll probably be cheaper versions but 
if you've got a really expensive one, it's really clean, you're using it at exactly the same time of day, and this is quite important as well, these machines, like actually it seems with everything, like calorie calculators, etc., they only are really accurate for middle of the range people. Like when you are very lean or when you are very overweight, they're not as accurate. So if you're like quite lean or like middle-ish range, like a healthy body weight, then they might give you a decent representation. Um, yeah. But again, think- the reason I didn't use them or never use them with clients, even when I have access to a very good one, which might be like fairly consistent, is that you'll come in every day with a different hydration status. Now, these are ma- because they're measuring how quickly the current goes through your body and the, that can measure the percentage of different tissues given or the composition of different tissues given how quickly it flows through. Now, if you're very hydrated, that will change. If you're dehydrated, that will change. So if I have a client that's coming in and doing a session with me, doing their body fat, let's say every week, if they come in at a different hydration level or they've just downed a big like thing of water before they step on this, it's going to be different. And it might say that they've put on body fat when they've actually lost. And that can be hugely demotivating. And if you don't have control over that figure, like there's just, in my opinion, like there's no point using it. Well, I think as, as well, if you look at it, the average, the average, um, the average discrepancy either way can be anything from five to ten percent which if you're looking at in body fat terms that is a why it's a a big jump that's not like one percent it's not like when we're talking about things like don't you know you need the sort of five percent stuff it's five to ten percent on a body fat scale is going to be you having a great day to you want to go home and destroy the two tubs of bearing jerrys in your fridge because everything's gone to tits so yeah or you you, like think about it like if you did like an eight week program or you know that's like three months of progress dropping 10 percent body fat that'd be really good yeah if that can fluctuate that more within like a day yeah don't want to use it exactly so i hope that settles your debate um okay for the podcast i'd love you to elaborate on how fat exits the body through breath because it's so interesting okay so Fat is stored in your body as a triglyceride molecule. And when you are in a deficit and you need to break down that triglyceride molecule for fuel, it's oxidized. Uh, And the byproduct of that breakdown is carbon dioxide and water. And then the energy can be used for fueling your body. Uh, And quite an interesting fact is that 84% of the fat um, that is lost is basically turned into carbon dioxide that leaves the body through the lungs and the remaining 16% is turned into water. So you would just like pee that out, sweat it out or use it for whatever you need to use it for hydration size. Um, I don't really know, like I don't really know how to elaborate on that except that I did a little bit of research because I wanted to be prepared for the podcast and I quite liked this. So this is a quote from a study that, that looks into this. It says, even if, um, even if one traces the fates of all the atoms in the body, the secret to weight loss remains the same. In order to lose weight, one, one needs to either eat less carbon or exercise more to remove the extra carbon from the body. So if you, you can almost think about like, instead of everyone's like, oh, you need to be in a calorie deficit, like you need to be in a carbon deficit at the end of the day, that's what it is. So maybe that's a new hashtag. Hashtag carbon fucking removal. Yeah. Carbon Um, deficit. I can see that catching on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you heard it here first, folks. Exactly. Okay. Why does everyone go on so much about drinking water if it's not necessary? I've always had a lot of water. My pee is always clear. But by moving up to two litres, it was becoming so disruptive um, I feared that I need to pee all the time or was desperately looking for somewhere to pee all of the time. <laughs> Sounds like you went. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for sharing all of that. Yeah, thank, <laughs> thanks for just making sure we knew that it was all of the time. This was, this is also in capital letters. And also that your pee's clear. Mm. Um, well, that's nah, good, it, important information because we know that she is hydrated. Hydrated. Um, yeah. I think when we, when, when you're working with clients, I think generally the, clients that you work with 
from like an like just from like the starting off point, generally they're not drinking enough water. So getting them to just start thinking about these things makes a big difference. But when you start to get to the point where you're seeing things like you're becoming a bit more disrupted by having to go to the toilet all the time, it's maybe that's the point where you take it under control yourself and just ease back a little bit. Um, it's the same thing, like, I suppose I would look at it when, when my dog was a puppy. If you put a bowl of water in front of her, she would drink until it was finished. If you put a second one in, she would drink until it's finished. So you've got to regulate these things. And at that point, she couldn't regulate it herself. So I had to do it for her. But now she's a bit older. She's a bit wiser. She doesn't write. She doesn't do that because she realizes she's going to pee on the carpet, which is again not a good thing. Don't pee on the carpet. Um, but yeah, it's um, generally when you when I start working with clients, and I'm, I'm guessing you'll be the same. Emma, is is that like the the actual if they were to count a glass of water that they were taking a day, it would probably manage to get one glass in. So it's just making them think a bit more of these things. Mm. But when you start to do that more often, you can start to regulate these things. So if you've realized that two and a half liters of water is too much, back it off, take it back to one and a half liters of water um, and just and regulate it from there. Yeah, I think, well, one, Andrew's totally right. People tend not to drink enough water. That's why there's like the general drink more water. But you can drink too much water and then you will just pee a lot. And your body's pretty good at maintaining its hydration status. So if it wants more water, you will realize that you are thirsty. And if it doesn't, like if you've drunk, had too much, as you've realized, you pee all the time. So it's going to keep this balance no matter what you do. But yeah, I think the main thing is that people tend not to drink enough water. Another trick is kind of just like instead of always grabbing a snack, just grab a drink of water. I think that's what people use a lot with weight loss it's like okay well you want something okay instead of going and eating let's have a glass of water first let's see how you actually feel and it can slow you down as you're eating so if you've got a glass of water then you're drinking that water while you drink actually take some time between each bite enjoy your food slow down take your time that's also helpful but yeah you're totally right you don't need more than what you need obviously yeah Okay, when you're hormonal, emotional and tired and you reach for chocolate ice cream or ice cream slash insert food, how do you stop yourself? Or do you just have it? I couldn't avoid... Oh no, wouldn't it avoid turning into a bad food or be restrictive? I suppose it's the difference between a one-off and a regular habit. I think taking the element of restriction away, and this is a bit of a mindset, like, okay, so... You're hormonal, emotional, tired, you want some chocolate, fine, have some chocolate. But there's a difference between being like, I want a little bit of comfort, I'm going to have some chocolate. And I want a little bit of comfort, I'm going to eat all the chocolate in the house and then try and get some more from somewhere or it turns into a bit of a binge. It's absolutely fine to enjoy a bit of food and find comfort, comfort in that. But realize that, you know, if you're... I mean, hormonal and emotional, you know, is going to pass. So that's kind of fine. You probably don't need to find a specific solution to that. But if it's something like stress at work or I don't know, something that's maybe going to be a lot more long term, try and find or like make a list of things that help you when you're feeling that way. So it might be having a bath, going out for a walk, turning your phone off and reading a book, speaking to your partner, calling someone having a conversation whatever it is like food shouldn't be the top of it if food is part of it i don't actually see that as a problem i think chocolate can be comforting and that's fine but there is a difference between saying okay i'm gonna allow myself this extra 400 calories of ice cream and chocolate rather than like as soon as you put that bad turn it into it's a bad food that's when you start to get problems with oh no i've cheated on my diet and things like that yeah i think that's i think that's it i think it's you know there's you need to understand the line between comfort and then binging there's that thing of you know there's no you know at the end of the day the restriction on food is the thing that's going to make it's because something's going to make you miserable if me or emma were to turn around and say it someday right for the next 12 weeks you're not allowed any chocolate the first thing you want is chocolate because we've told you you can't have it. So, you know, rather than doing that, having given, allowing yourself a small amount of chocolate, then you've got it, you've done it. But as you say, you know, that thing that exactly there, you know, things like making a list of other 
other avenues where you can relax. So things like for me, walking the dog's the big one for me. Like I'll get out, I'll go out and I'll get some steps in, walk the dog, fresh air. Doesn't matter if it's sunny, if it's raining, if it's snowing, get out some fresh air, get some get some the legs moving. And I always end up feeling better after it. It's somewhere where I can relax, it's somewhere where I can think, I can put all these things and sort of note stuff down. So yeah, you know, just find these other things that are going to be um help alleviate the sort of the situation that you're at in it at that point so agreed okay what are your thoughts on food intolerance tests um i've yet to see one that's um accurate for a start um one of the, i had a when i was training a mate for a while and he he sent away for when he got one i think he got one for free for like his birthday or his christmas or something like that he sent away for it and he came back with stuff like yeah this is this is your intolerances you're intolerant to pigeon i'm like intolerant to pigeon like what, what kind of what kind of food test is this you're doing he's like oh that's nothing he goes keep going you're intolerant to swan and seagulls and i'm like that going i think that's i'm making that up but it was like two things where i just went you wouldn't eat them anyway like yeah. really like, oh how restrictive that, no more pigeons i mean people do eat pigeon breast all right pigeons vet pigeons tasty it's very it's but very good. like it's not it's not gonna ruin it's not high on the list of things that i'm not having it daily so it's not going to be something i need yeah. to worry about taking it with the diet um, it's interesting because i think a lot of these tests work on um antibodies to things so if you've been exposed to something you will already have high antibodies to them so often tests come back with things that people eat all the time and that almost gives them more credit because most people who go and get like i'm not going to get an intolerance test i don't seem to have any problems touch wood with like anything that i'm eating i don't have ibs i don't have anything like that okay so why would i get one people who do have some of these symptoms are going to be like, oh yes, I need to get one. It's going to come back saying basically everything you ate in the last week or a lot of the things you ate in the last week you're intolerant to because yeah. you have high antibodies to them because you've been exposed to them, not because you're intolerant to them. Yeah. So, and then people end up cutting out all these things that they really enjoy. And they're like, oh my God, that, and it fits, doesn't it? Because you're like, I always eat apples. That's why I always have a sore stomach. And this test proves it. Whereas if, if it came back saying you're intolerant to pigeon and you're like, I've never eaten pigeon. That has nothing to do with my symptoms. Then it doesn't really work. So I yeah. think it almost plays on that. And there's, there is like, just to clarify, there is a difference between these tests and the tests that you're getting at like your doctors for actual intolerances that they are different. But a lot of intolerances you cannot test for in that, in that direct way. Like you won't be able to, your doctor's not going to turn around and be like, mm, you are intolerant to apples. But what they might say is that maybe you're sensitive to things that have high FODMAPs. And so maybe we need to reduce the amount of that in your diet. And like, honestly, what you're probably going to have to do if you're in that situation and it's long and it's tedious and it's really hard work, but you are going to have to, do a bit of an elimination diet of, okay, let's keep my diet the same. Let's take out certain things, see what happens, and then wait for the results of that, which is the long process. But the thing is, if you do it right once, you shouldn't have to do it again because yeah. you'll like the whole process of the FODMAP diet is you eliminate them, you bring them back in one-on-one to see which ones aggravate you, and then you know for the rest of your life what things are going to happen. And I have friends that have done that and who now don't have um, those symptoms that they were experiencing, but still sometimes eat those foods. But they're like, I know that that's going to give me an upset stomach. They're like, but at least I think it's much easier if you're like, yeah, well, you know what? I know onions don't agree with me, but this dinner looks amazing and there's some onions in it. I probably have a sore stomach tomorrow. Like, if that that's now your choice and you know why it happened which is a yeah. better position to be in that's it well we managed to get all of those questions done sorted sorted that was lovely i very much enjoyed you being back it's been good fun always like a good rant it's great fun <laughs> yeah i actually feel quite relieved as well like i feel like i've got out i mean we didn't talk about skinny jabs Oh God! But yeah. maybe maybe we'll leave that until the dust has settled a little bit. 
Yeah, because I know you, you quite like Gemma Collins, don't you? Oh man, I can't, I don't anymore. I used to find her really funny. But funny, uh, funny in what way? Like funny that you wanted to throw something at her or hope she fell over or something like that? I don't like, know. I, I just thought she was really funny. And I think I, I said my last podcast with Shona, I was like, Gemma Collins, if you want to if you want a PT, like I'm here, just hit me up. And then like the next day, skinny jabs happened. And I was like, oh shit. And you're out. Yeah. My has now become full and I cannot take you on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, we will, we will talk to you all next week. Have a lovely weekend. Or if you're listening to this another day, have a lovely day. Well, there'll be a weekend after it. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Well, goodbye. <laughs>